So we're in the fourth message on the Sermon on the Bount. Uh, Sermon on the Bount? What is the Bount? I don't know what a Bount is. The Sermon on the Mount. Very famous, probably the most famous message in, in human history. It's Matthew chapter 5 to 7. Jesus begins the sermon with some very simple but astonishing words. We've looked at it the last two weeks where he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to repeat that refrain for eight more times. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. And that word blessed, it carries the sense of take joy in the divine favor upon your life. So Jesus' opening lines are meant to be a tidal wave of good news that repaint the canvas of our soul and our soul's concept of who God is and how God wants to be known. And if you think of all the different ways we can conceive of what is God like, when you wake up in the morning, do you get a tidal wave of nine blessings that wash over your spirit? That's how Jesus started, in a sense, his introduction or reintroduction to what God is all about, who God is and how God wants to be known. You have reason for great joy, Jesus is saying. Divine favor is upon your life. God is with you. He is present. He is active. He is for you. The magnitude of his gracious goodness towards you is meant to overwhelm you with hope. It's not too good to be true, though it maybe feels that way. Our job is to bask in these blessings, to receive them, to respond to them. And then Jesus moves directly into these words. Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but rather on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. As always with Jesus, so deep, so much, too much, so I'm going to try to focus in on the central thrust of the flow of thought that we have from the beginning of the Beatitudes, which just means blessings, up through this point right here. As you hear about the blessings of God towards you, this overwhelming tidal wave of good news, blessing after blessing after blessing, and you respond to them, you are going to grow to become a mightily powerful person. Listen to the descriptions in this section. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Your light will shine in such a way that others see your good works and they give glory to God who is in heaven. And your righteousness will exceed that of the Pharisees. So right away in this Sermon on the Mount, we have a a teaching about this overwhelming measure of grace. And as we respond to it, how it's going to transform our lives in very real ways. The Beatitudes are meant to become a new way of life for us, a way of relating with God in his gracious goodness towards us, all these blessings of divine favor. But as we live into this new way of life, it's based on grace, we are going to increasingly, what does it say? Shine the light of God to the world and be a a taste, if you will. That's what Salt does, right? It says, Jesus says, if salt lost, it loses its taste. So you see what's on his mind. We're meant to be a taste of God in the earth. Are you comfortable with this statement right here? Your good deeds, your good works are going to be so strikingly powerful that people are going to look at your life and be like, wow, God has to be involved in that life. It's what he said. It's directly what he said. Or how about this one? Are you comfortable with Jesus saying your righteousness will exceed that of the religious leaders of his day? Many of us read this section and as we get into really the the meat of the life issues starting next week, it is easy. Check yourself here. I know for me. It's easy to read these as at minimum an exaggeration and maybe even an impossibility. So a question for us this morning to wrestle with is, are these standards that Jesus puts forth 
to be taken seriously? Or are they like these high ideals that are more of a kind of rhetorical tool by Jesus to get us excited, but effectively, if we're honest, we don't think they're real and we ignore them. Here's an example. I was talking with a, a pastor friend a number of years ago, and, and he was going through the Sermon on the Mount at his church and saying, oh man, I love the Sermon on the Mount so much, it's so beautiful. But then he went on to say, but in the takeaway though is thank God Jesus died on the cross for all my sins because I can't live up to that. He interpreted the Sermon on the Mount as a presentation from Jesus as all these impossible ideals, each of which further prove how far we all, you know, how far we all fall short and thus need a savior. And he is not alone in any fashion in this interpretation. I would assert, being around the church essentially my whole life, that when it comes to the hard teachings of Jesus, we put them in that category. It, that kind of the prevailing ethos, it's, it's well, it's really hard, so thank God for Jesus. He died for all my sins and shortcomings. Now, while thank God for Jesus, he died for all my sins and shortcomings, and the interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount as such obviously has a reasonable connection to the biblical truth that Praise God, Jesus died for all my sins and shortcomings, and I would be hopeless without him. There's a monumental problem with this mindset that leads to the interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount as, wow, there's all these amazing high ethical standards and teachings. Thank God Jesus died for me because I can't live up to it. There's one problem, monumental problem with it. It's the exact opposite of the point of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is not joking or exaggerating or lying when he teaches that the true followers of his kingdom will shine with so many impressive good deeds that people are going to look at your life and be like, wow, that definitely can't be you by yourself. God must be doing something. So is there anything in this passage that we read this morning, and I would extend it to anything that we see in the Sermon on the Mount, in any verse of it, that whatsoever indicates that Jesus isn't 100% serious, that everything he says are actual expectations and ideas that he believes you can live into. I would argue a big emphatic no. What you actually find in the whole thing, and we'll see it, you can see it right here, is in a sense four different ways. 
within a few verses, four different images, so to speak, a repetition of an idea. As you live from grace, as you learn to bask in and live from grace, found in the Beatitudes, your character will be transformed in truly extraordinary, what we might later say, Christ-like ways. To use Jesus' words, your growth will be so dynamic, it can be described as the light of God to the world. That's a high standard. <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't know how else to reflect on it. If there's something coming out of me that is, is so bright, it is the light of God to the world, well, I better expect that my character is getting transformed because I know that me on my own strength is not going to be shining the light of God to the world. There's going to be God doing a lot in here and helping me, and transforming me, and growing me. Because if people are going to look at my life and be like, wow, God must be involved. I see God in you. You're, you're going to be transformed. Or if Jesus is going to say that you are the salt of the earth, that's a taste thing. It's like, you know, if you lose your taste, it's pointless. You're not, you're not doing your job. Like salt is not doing its job if it has no taste. It's lost its function and purpose and Jesus is saying and that's you as you get to know me as you bask in the grace of of the beatitudes and all this undeserved goodness poured your way and you respond and you say yes which that's the gospel right by the way the opening line of the whole thing is blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven so it's the one who humbly recognizes we have nothing on our own. We can't do it. We have no righteousness on our own. We need God's strength. We are dependent on him every step of the way for everything. That's saying yes to the gospel. And all the other Beatitudes are in that same vein. And so out of that response of God, I need you, yes to your grace in my life in every way, it doesn't stop at a ticket to heaven. It's like, that's just the beginning. Born again is just the beginning. Transformation is what comes next. He goes on to say that you, you're going to have deeds so good it reflects heaven. You are going to have a righteousness so high above the status quo. You're going to leave the current religious leaders of the day in the dust. It's four different ways of saying the exact same thing. If you hear Jesus' words and put them into practice, which is his altar call at the end, chapter 7, you will build your life on the rock. This is the same thing. If you hear these words and put them into practice, you are, you are going to grow into a new level of character and virtue higher than you ever thought possible, and it will reflect God to the world. How is that not what Jesus is saying here? Before we get too far into what seems impossible and a little, little scary, let's be clear. Jesus is giving us a goal and a vision. 
That doesn't mean it's a smooth or an easy road. Will we all fall short? Absolutely. Of course. And is there grace and forgiveness when we do? Of course. But the problem is that in our, in our world right now, in the, in the Christian ethos in, in our country, I'll just say that at least the Southern California Christianity, and I'm a, I'm a theological mutt in the sense of like I've been to every kind of possible church in Southern California, which sample sizes pretty well to extending out into what we've got going on in Christianity in America. The problem is when we don't take Jesus serious, that he actually means and believes what he says. That we can aim extremely high and expect a character transformation and growth in virtue that will be explained by ourselves and others as, hey, that's nothing short of a work of God. For me, a helpful way to think of this as I wrestle through, it's like, man, because we're about to get into some very high, virtuous character demands and commands of Jesus. He's going to address anger and lust and revenge and hate. And man, he, he goes high on all of them, uncomfortably high. I mean, I get why it's like, oh, thank you, Jesus, that you saved me a sinner. And it's true. But we have to be real with that's not Jesus' point right now. I think many of us suffer from a Reformation hangover. So let's think about this concept for a moment. A Reformation hangover keeps us from seeing the Sermon on the Mount properly. As a Protestant, one who agrees with the protesting against the the Catholic Church that Martin Luther King and John Calvin and Zwingli and others uh, participated in in the 1500s. I have enormous gratitude, appreciation, and agreement with the spiritual battle that was fought during the Reformation. Specifically, I believe Martin Luther was absolutely right to to protest. That's where Protestant comes from, by the way. We're all protesters to protest against the Catholic Church for the profane and unbiblical practice of selling indulgences, among other things. Like, you could literally purchase the forgiveness of your sins. Like, ahead of time. Like, hey man, I know I'm going to Vegas this weekend, so I'm going to shell out, you know, my extra whatever. I'm going to pay for it ahead of time. That is messed up. There's only one who can purchase the forgiveness of sins. That's why we protested or we are going along that vein saying, I'm with them. I'm protesting that and saying there is only one worthy to purchase the forgiveness of sins. And it's all hail King Jesus. His blood on the cross purchased the forgiveness of sins. Nothing else can. His perfect life, death, and resurrection purchased the forgiveness of sins and my righteousness, your righteousness. 
So he was right, Martin Luther was, to protest against this spiritual atrocity, call the church back to the to call the church to repentance and back to the, the basic gospel message that we are saved by grace through faith in the finished and perfect work of Christ. However, as is common to humanity, one attempt to correct an excess often leads to another excess. Martin Luther was so fixated on his by faith alone corrective message and the excess of the emphasis on works, 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 right? We as good evangelicals are scared of that word, right? Works, you know, we cringe, ah, can't earn my salvation. He was so, that's the Reformation hangover if you feel that. He was so against the works Legend has it that he tore the book of James out of his Bible. And quote, this is what he feels about it. Therefore, St. James, he wrote this, is an epistle of straw, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. And he went on to encourage Christian schools, church schools, we should, quote, throw the epistle of James out of, this school, out of this school, for it doesn't amount to much. One excess corrected, leading to another excess. I mean, have all y'all torn the book of James out of your Bible? Do you love the commands to work? Come on, you comfortable with saying, throw those high ethical commands and demands on me, Jesus? I know that, like, I get uncomfortable when Jesus says something like, if you don't have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, you are not entering the kingdom of heaven. And he means it. It's the same thing as being salt and light and having good deeds. He's not talking about, and we over-spiritualize the heaven out of this one, that... <laughs> Oh, he's talking about his righteousness that's coming later. No, he's not. There's nothing in the passage that indicates that. It's a parallel idea with salt and light and how your righteousness, your good works are going to be so impressive to people, they're going to say God's involved in that guy's life. And if you don't have that, you're probably not in the kingdom of heaven. Are we all still comfortable? <laughs> it's just the Bible. But Martin was so wounded in, 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 in understandable measure, understandably. I mean, you got the, the priests out there literally selling salvation. Like, hey, anybody want to buy it? You're going to have a bad weekend? You're going to make some decisions? You know you shouldn't? Well, hey, 50 bucks. We'll take care of that. I mean, so I I'm not in any way like, oh, I'm better than Martin Luther. No, I under Man, I get it. That's Wow. That is a spiritual atrocity to the blood of Jesus. But so hurt, you know, and, and wounded, I would say, by the abuses of this idea of works that he, he, he couldn't 
handle the book of James. <laughs> because, I mean, I would argue, yes, it has a lot of gospel in it. It, pre it, it presents really the exact same picture as Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, which is if you have real faith, that will express itself in works, action, deeds. And if you don't, is that faith real or is it just an idea you like? Because real faith will transform everything about you. You are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Let your light shine so others see your good works. Uh-oh, good works. And give God glory. The, the, the challenge, the danger is so many people are, are having this Reformation hangover, just so averse to things about works and good deeds that it, it leads us to places like where we'll settle and start making up stuff like, well, God gave me this besetting sin. That's literally nowhere in the Bible whatsoever. But it makes us feel comfortable, comfortable for the reality of when we fall short, what do we do with that? Well, thank, geez, thank God Jesus covers that. Now, yes, thank God Jesus covers that, but no, nowhere does he ever say, so go ahead and settle for your besetting sins. Just take them on as part of your identity, own them. You're just gonna settle for that for the rest. You gotta settle for it. It's just gonna be your besetting struggle for the rest of your life. And therefore, we don't fight against sin and fight for that high character that Jesus talked about and that ver Christ-like virtue because it's hard and I tried that and I struggled and so I'm just gonna kind of settle in here. Thank you for grace. The simple and severe problem with the Reformation hangover mindset is it's just quite exactly the opposite of what Jesus says is possible and God-honoring for your life. We can't read the high ethics of the Sermon on the Mount as these lofty ideals to effectively just be ignored. And as we instead conclude, well, thank God Jesus died for a sinner like me who's never going to live up to that. We just have to wrestle with this... <laughs> I find it because I'm covered in grace. I've already bought that with the blood of Jesus. So I'm covered in grace. So now, guess what? If Jesus puts forth a high ethical norm and virtuous character, it's good news because it's like, wow, I don't have to stay where I'm at today. My life can get better because of God's grace in my life as much as I might struggle along the way onward and upward from one degree of glory for another, which is a Bible verse, it's good news. I get to be transformed, which makes my life better and everyone around me. Jesus teaches them these high ethical standards, these ideals, precisely because they are the new way of life that is possible when we allow Jesus to reign as king. Lastly here in, in, in pretty much close, another way to look at this 
is our mindset. I, I, I mentioned a Reformation hangover mindset. Maybe you don't like that term. That's fine. What's your mindset? Our mindsets, this is why God goes after the renewing of our mind. Because our mindsets are incredibly powerful. What we think becomes what we believe. That's why we have to have our minds renewed so that we believe the truth of who God is. So your mindset creates expectations. And your expectation of what is actually possible, think about your own life, your mindset, your expectation of what is actually possible has a tremendous outcome on what actually happens in your life. For example, if your mindset as you read and hear the Sermon on the Mount is, oh, I can't, I can't, I can't live up to really any of those ethical teachings of Jesus, you've just guaranteed that you won't. If you take any of the issues that he addresses, and man, he goes, he, man, it's like he knows what's up. It's like he knows he's, like he's wise, like he knows what we struggle with. These next six weeks, we're going to look at one of each, each one of these, what you might call them, virtues and vices that Jesus believes are rather central to how we are living life. And if you take any of the issues that he addresses, and have the mindset that says, I will never overcome that. Well, you have just made a self-limiting, God-limiting, and frankly, Jesus-dishonoring, self-fulfilling prophecy that ultimately says, like, yeah, this thing, is, this thing that I'm struggling with is more powerful than what God can do in my life. Does that flow with Jesus' opening words about what you, the transformation that's going to take place in you when he says, yeah, you follow me? You're going to become the salt of the earth, the light of the world, with deeds and good works so impressive, people give God glory. It's a righteousness that way exceeds the current status quo. So, Jesus, as we get into these virtues and vices. Let's make sure we're coming with the mindset. He is not teaching about these vices to make you feel guilty about being a loser that could never overcome them. Got to get rid of that. It's literally the opposite reason he brings them up. He, he actually believes you can become the powerful person that grows, it's a journey, it's not one day, grows to overcome them. So I challenge you to look over these next six weeks as we get into some specific ones. As he addresses them, is there anything in there where he says to you, you can't overcome this? This is your besetting sin. This is too big for you and it's too big for God. Or is the whole point of him bringing them up saying, this is how you grow to overcome it? It's the latter, by the way. And that's what we're gonna be seeing. So as we get into the, the meat, so to speak, of the Sermon on the Mount here, to honor God and to give ourselves the opportunity to grow into the fullness of what God has for us, 
I challenge you, encourage you, hopefully invite you, this is good news, to get rid of any old mindsets that limit the expectations of how much you can grow. We've got to sober up, so to speak, from any Reformation hangover, hear Jesus' words for what they truly are. A new way of life that is actually possible when we allow God to reign as king. Can we do this on our own strength? Absolutely not. That's why the very opening line of this sermon is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The ones who are poor in spirit are the ones who are going to have a righteousness, a real transformation of character righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. So let's expect and believe that what is impossible on our own strength is possible with God. This is his king domain, his kingdom in our life. Let's pray along those lines. I was singing.